The Omniplex is open. And uh, we've got a kind of a special episode getting us back on track, back on the norms. Um, we do. By the way, uh, I'm Albert. I'm Austin. I'm Zephyr. We're going to do another mass cast. We're going to do another cast. We're going to want cover a bunch of movies at once. And uh, we have a reason this time. Mostly, these are a lot of movies that we're just not going to get to if we don't do a cast like this. And... I am fascinated by the fall of 2007. I think it is one of the best, you know, in terms of the quality of films, it is pound for pound one of the best periods in cinema history. I think it's up there with 1939. I think it's up there with uh, 2009's indie season. I think it's just a rare time, and uh, it's up there with 1999 even. I think there's some stuff here that's on that level. Agreed. It's it's very much a golden age, just kind of the entire year. It really is, because that's the thing, is it's not like, oh, it was crap for the entire year, and then all of a sudden it hit the fall and it was good. You have gems throughout. In fact, my favorite movie of the year came out in April and in February in the UK. Same. Yeah, I'm guessing it's the same film, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still my favorite movie of all time. It's it's a movie that I can watch at any, any moment. Uh, for those that have not listened to the cast enough to figure it out, uh, we're talking about Hot Fuzz, of course. Of course. But, you know, even in the spring, you had stuff like Zodiac. You had um, a lot of people really love Meet the Robinsons. I don't, but that's one that has its audience. Yeah, Meet the Robinsons, it, it's honestly hit and miss, depending depending on how old you are and yeah. whether or not you're familiar with the works of William Joyce. Because if, if you know Roly Polioli, you automatically see the aesthetic and, and the shapes within Meet the Robinsons. I agree. I was in college, and I was in my senior year of college, my last semester even, so I was too old for it. I'm just going to say it. Oh, yeah. I, I saw it just for, like, solely for the 3D. Same. Yeah, it was a thing to see. The 3D wasn't bad. The story wasn't bad. It's nothing I'd revisit. No. You had stuff like The King of Kong in the summer. Uh, you had stuff like... Um, Ratatouille. Ratatouille. Hello. Ratatouille, which is amazing. Yes. Uh, I might even go so far as to say I think it's my favorite Brad Bird film. Oh, e easy. It's yeah. honestly yeah. one of my favorite Pixar films, too. Like, 
Pixar from like between Ratatouille, then Wally, then Up, and then Toy Story Three. That was a solid run, right there. You could argue for any one of those movies as the best film of the year. One of the weird side effects of uh, Ratatouille was I really liked Patton Oswalt's work in it, and I hadn't listened to his stand-up. Yeah. I have listened to his stand-up now uh, as a result of that movie. He is a funny guy, I will just point out. He's an exceedingly funny guy. So, you know, there's that. So you had good movies throughout, but we kind of want to look at this one little condensed four-month chunk Though we are going to start off with the film that Zephyr pointed out in the precast that I think is really worth noting, because I think in a way it's kind of a film that changed something in the entertainment industry. Yeah, it really did. Um, right around uh, the middle of August, Disney Channel released their much-hyped follow-up to High School Musical, and so we got High School Musical 2, a film set at the start of summer vacation when everyone else in the real world is going back to school. Brilliant timing. Yes, absolutely brilliant timing. And it it did gangbusters for their their ratings. It was one of the most watched Disney Channel original movies at that time. And thanks to the success of the first one, uh, it more or less revitalized Kenny Ortega's directing career as well as, well, obviously uh, being a vehicle for a lot of, or at least a good portion of actors that are still in the business today, primarily uh, Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. And they all, they, they all deserve it. They all deserve to keep working. They're, they're interesting actors. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I I kind of find it, find it funny that the older Efron gets, the more that his fan base seems to actually grow. <laughs> yeah, and with High School Musical two, it God that came out right when I started my freshman year of high school. So this would be a this would be a great moment for us to all kind of pause and talk about where we were in this time because that's going to be the context that's going to drive the entire rest of the cast. Yeah. yeah. Fall of 2007 was my freshman year of high school, so going from a very small class, graduating class of six people, including myself in eight, eighth grade, at a, at a small Catholic school in the middle of nowhere, to a class of over 200 was a bit of a transition, as well as trying to navigate that entire social sphere with autism and social cues and all that jazz um i will say right off the bat um even just looking at at the list of stuff that came out um there was a film released right around that time that earned me my high school nickname because of my resemblance to one actor and that would be McLovin. <laughs> I was considering talking about Superbad, uh, but I feel like that one's going to need its own cast because I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it deserves its own cast. I, I think it's, and I think it's that, a brilliant film still to this day. Just to be blunt, but 
yeah, being yeah. pegged as a Christopher Mintz Plass lookalike. Um, yeah, the nickname McLovin kind of stuck, even though I didn't see the film until last year or so. So I'm just kind of riding this high or this wave of popularity, even though I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Hmm. Um, at, at the same time, though, I will admit that uh, my my film choices back then sucked. They, I mean, I did see Balls of Fury in the theater with friends that I probably shouldn't have, and I actually uh, lied to my folks saying that I was watching, uh, I believe it was Underdog. Which is weird, because I think Balls of Fury is such an innocent movie. It It is. It's just, it's a thing that exists yeah it is i mean listen i saw a film from the same writers that year theatrically so don't worry yeah and like the vast majority of the films that we'll be covering today i really did not get around to watching until late college and after college and of course i have a much stronger appreciation for those now that i've lived a little See, that's exactly where I was in this fall, so that's kind of fitting. So, uh, what about you, Albert? Where were you in the fall of 2007? Fall 2007, I would have been in my either my sophomore or junior year of college. Uh, I was I was kicking it at my parents. Uh, I was still living with them. I would be kind of deep into going to films. Rift Tracks came out around that time, mm-hmm. so I was deep into that. You know, Simpsons movie, etc. You know, super excited for Hot Fuzz. And uh, most importantly, for this era uh, that we're covering, this September through December, uh, October was around the time that I found out I was going to be an uncle. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of a golden time. I look back on it very fondly. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, cause I was, I was in my film studies. I think that was a year I took animation, uh, my college's very first animation course, uh, which I am proud to be like the guinea pig for that. Like my college now, cause I had to take a degree in communications with an emphasis in media production. And now they offer an actual degree called, uh, film. Cool. <laughs> so cool. At, at the same time, I'm jealous and proud that I was one of the people to kind of help build that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to be helping. But anyway, uh, so yeah, 2007 was that. Um, that was about where I was. So the next year, my niece would be born. And it was t- 2007, 2008 was kind of a golden time. And I've kind of marked it like it's one of my markers you know, it's like Kevin Smith explained, like he marks his life in a certain anchor point. <laughs> and that's one of the anchor points. As do we all. And Oh, yeah. So let me just really quickly say where I was, because it's funny. I was the exact opposite of where you were. Um, I was. I had a very bad, brief job experience in the summer. And I was looking hard for a full-time job. I was working two 
days a week at a newspaper, uh, things were not going well for me. I was looking for a job this entire season. Um, at the end of the year, I would actually go on a series of job interviews and would have basically what amounted to a nervous breakdown at the end of the year. Um, I will cover the film that I saw during that breakdown uh, at the end, as we when we hit it on the cast. But this is very much an era where I was depressed and I was really only surviving via film. So I'm going to hit up a bunch. We're just going to hit up a bunch of movies and we're going to try and do this quickly. Um, you know, there's a lot we're going to skip. Um, I haven't seen Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I probably should, but that's a major notable one. Francis Ford Coppola had a film out. And I'll tell you all, probably the two biggest ones that are omissions for me are, I didn't see the assassination of Jesse James. I'm not going into the full title. I, I just, it didn't grab my interest. I've heard it's good. Didn't see it. I didn't see Atonement. And I feel like that's one that's probably a bit of a hole for me. Um, I will note that Atonement is notable for being the first Oscar nomination for Saoirse Ronan. So that, that that's how far back she was getting nominated. I want to point that out. For for who now? Uh, Saoirse Ronan. Lady Bird. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, okay, yeah. She was literally getting nominated as early as 2008. So I, I, that's pretty incredible. And I didn't see the Darjeeling Limited because I'm on the record. I don't like Wes Anderson. <laughs> so I'm going to go on ahead and say right now, those are my three big omissions. Uh, I had heard that he was doing an animated film at that point, mm. you know, which would end up being... Of course, Fantastic Mr. Fox. The one I like. Yeah, as uh, I'm on record as being a huge Wes Anderson film, and I, uh, I read all of Raoul Dahl's books uh, as a Same. kid. So um, I was super excited for that. And then I remember seeing another announcement for like the film in between. Like, oh, he has another live action one in between. Okay, I'll, I'll check this out. And of course, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I would see that at the uh, at the Tivoli Theater, which I hit up big that year. Um, Indy Theater here in Kansas City. The original location is now closed, but it lives on inside the Nelson Atkins Museum. Cool. So just a quick shout out to them. So I've got a list here. I'm just going to start going through titles. And the first one I'm going to cover is one that... Zephyr, did you have something you wanted to add? Um, I, I guess, I, as I alluded to during my intro i missed a lot of films and even now i'm still missing some like um atonement um enchanted juno yeah there there's a couple of ones that i still haven't gotten around to we're gonna kick it off with a little scene gem that i really do want to take a moment to sell people on because i think it's a good example of what satire can be and that is uh Shoot 'em up with Clive Owen. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's one of those movies that if you've seen it, you're going to instantly grin. It is such a maniacal parody of the American gun obsession. That's the thing. This was a year where we had two comedies that were just utterly merciless in their satire of the American gun culture. Yes. And this was the other one next to Hot Fuzz. And I think... Of course, Hot Fuzz is a classic at this point. Hot Fuzz is a perfect film. It is. I think this one deserves 
to be found as well. I think this is a really smart, clever film. And I'm that's really all I'm going to say about that. It's it's worth seeking out. It's not hard to find. Yeah. It's uh as Paul Giamatti who is just in madman mode in it. It's completely ridiculous. Like they uh, on the DVD they illustrate how very tightly storyboarded like there are like seven core action sequences in it that they just completely uh honed for the film. This was the director's only real big shot at the big time and I, I think it's a shame because this this is one of those movies it should have been more and uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad yeah, I'm glad you've seen it too because it, it's worth seeing. Next on the list I have Across the Universe. Yeah. Oh I'm Zephyr and I have thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna step back and let y'all talk. I'm I'm honestly torn on on this film because on the one hand, doing a Beatles-inspired story where it's sort of like a jukebox musical, but they go through uh, the songs in order of when they were released and then working that into a story that I can admire as well as the visual since uh, the director, Julie Taymor got to Kyle Cooper's prologue studios involved for some of those sequences uh, primarily uh, for benefit of Mr. Kite and I want you. She's so heavy. The story itself leaves a little much to be desired. And it's a shame because it could work. This film could work and become a, like a very wonderful spectacle along the lines of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. However, I I don't know how quite to say this. It, I, Albert, I'm I'm just going to toss it to you. I think I think we're going along the same lines here because. Uh, I I love the Beatles. I have been a fan, as I'm sure, you know, yeah. same with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, been a fan since I was a kid, introduced to all the albums, you know, uh, through my dad, etc. Anyway, huge Beatles fan, and I was so excited for this one just because it's like, oh, it's the Beatles, and they're gonna they're gonna make it into a story and it'll be very interesting. And I thought the the visuals were great. Like as soon as like uh it's like it has a guy getting off a boat and then talks to a ticket seller and then oh yeah, I'm gonna have a lot saved up when I'm sixty four and it's like a ha 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 okay yeah. and then it just kind of went on from there and uh, it just felt everything felt so shoehorned like the like the plot was an afterthought it it kind of was and like yeah it. It's low-hanging fruit to have characters named after some of the Beatles songs or, shoot, like you said, shoehorning in references to other works that they wouldn't be able to fit in otherwise. Yeah. It's a great sequence of music videos. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that that's the thing about Tamor is she's great as a music video director, but she's not David Fincher. She's not, narrative is lost on her. And, you know, I hate to say this because you, because women should be allowed to be just as insane as men on sets, but 
I've never read a story about her that didn't leave me feeling like, oh, this woman really should just be, she, sh she should be doing much smaller work. She's crazy, just to be polite. I can respect her, like, artistic decisions in terms of this and then what she did for the Broadway adaptation of The Lion King and, mm -hmm. unfortunately, having her name attached to the 2019 redo. Yeah, it's... It could have been more. It could have been so much more in the right hands, and it wasn't. I will never find out, because I'm never going to watch the damn thing. Yeah. Watch some of the individual songs. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. There are some really great sequences, and then there are some that just leave much to be desired. And if you were going to go for, like films that are parallel to world events that were happening at that time. Like, it builds up to the Vietnam War. Yeah. Honestly, you might just want to pause the film and watch uh, Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool. It could have been more. Yeah. Yes. It could have been Moulin Rouge with Beatles. Exclusively Beatles, but mm -hmm. it's not what we got. I do remember it was advertised a lot because uh, at my school, and I'm sure this might have been the case for some of the other schools, we had a package news segment called Channel 4. And in between the news stories, they would run commercials for, you know, the usual teen stuff, current movies, current TV shows, and acne stuff. Also... Uh, anti-prescription drug addiction stuff. So, you know, got to round out the spectrum there. But yeah, I remember this was advertised a lot back then, and I didn't see it until college at best. It has its cult following. I'm going to do a minute on a movie that I can feel pretty certain none of y'all have seen. But did y'all see D-War Dragon Wars? Nope. <laughs> no, I, I vaguely remember the title. I mean, I saw the Rift Tracks edition. This <laughs> is the greatest MST3K that MST3K did basically wind up doing. Um, it is it is such a, an astonishingly bad movie. And uh, why why wouldn't they just call it Dragon Wars? There, it's complicated and weird, and I'm sure there was porn. It is a movie that I cannot believe played theaters and. There's a lot of movies that I left off this list that I am shocked played theaters. Like, I want to be clear, as much as we're going to be hitting the gold, man, stuff like this is amazing. So, uh, D-War is bad. How is Into the Wild, Zephyr? Because you, this was one you singled out. In my senior year of high school, we read the book for our 20th century literature class, and then we ended up watching the film. Personally, I did not care for the book or Christopher McCandless's or Alexander Supertramp, whatever the fuck his name is. I didn't care for his antics. If he wanted to just be a fucking free spirit, more power to him. But if you're going to do that, you're going to need knowledge. And he got what he deserved at the very end by eating... The wrong plants in that fucking bus which nowadays the bus has actually been removed because too many people have trekked there and trying to 
redo that story and i'm just like no please please don't i haven't watched the film since but i honestly don't care to return because i just didn't like the guy at all and sean penn directing and adapting the events left much to be desired i would imagine you need someone who's going to objectively look at it and go, this guy's a shithead. He really was. Anyone can have wanderlust and, you know, get back to your roots or whatever, but at the same time, you, you can't just fully cut your cut all ties to the reality that we have. I, I agree. Someone hit on a movie that is little remembered, but I'm bringing it up because it is a good symbol of something that was really going on right now in 2007. And it's one that I did see. You know, there were a lot of war on terror movies in this era. Rendition um, was one of them. Uh, you had a few others um, that came out and just kind of came out in this cluster. Uh, Rendition in the Valley of Ella and then this one, The Kingdom. And they made absolutely no dent at the box office. They made no dent at the awards season. I like The Kingdom, but it is, it's Peter Berg who would go on to really do some right-wing bullshit in his movies. And you start to understand where all those issues are. I think this is a movie that tried to be a little bit more empathetic. It was a script by one of the Carnahans. Um, I think Matthew. It's not a bad script. Jamie Foxx is really good in it. Jason Bateman is really good in it. Jennifer Garner is really good in it. But if I wanted to see Bateman and Garner being good in something, hold your tongues. We're going to get there. Uh, Tim McGraw has a really nice cameo in it. That's one interesting thing about it. Uh, because he'd been in Peter Berg's Friday Night Lights, which is a much better movie than this. Um, now that we've gotten that one out of the way, we're going to get to one of the big titles. That is one of the reasons I wanted to do this cast in the first place. Ah, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's time. Um, I want to talk about the sheer brilliance of Tony Gilroy's Michael Clayton. Yeah. God damn, I love this movie. So what else has Tony Gilroy done? Um, he was a major writer on the Bourne movies. That's right. Okay, that's the connection. With Rogue One, he was basically the guy that came in and saved the film's ass. Gareth Edwards was flailing horribly. Gilroy basically did what um, Joss Whedon did on um, Justice League, except Gilroy being a really talented filmmaker, he really came in and shored that film up. He rewrote it extensively and directed most of it, actually. Did not know that. Yeah, he probably deserves a lot of credit for that film going the way it did. They extensively reshot it, and Gilroy was the guy that came in and did that. Uh, he is currently working on the Cassian Andor series. He's showrunning that, uh, which will be the spinoff of that with uh, Diego Luna, which I'm super excited for. But let's talk about this movie, because this movie is... I still quote it. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I quote it. I think about it. it the visuals live in my head. Now, it was shot by Robert Ellswood, who would actually win the Oscar for cinematography this year for uh, the last film we're going to cover. This is one of those movies that I almost—I don't think you could—I don't think it would get made now. I don't think it would get made now. It wouldn't get released the way it got released. This might no. go to Netflix. I don't. Hmm. 
because it is so small. It is so compact. It is so tight. Zephyr, have you seen it? Nope. Well, then let's then we're gonna sell you on it because this is this is as good as films got this year. It's not my favorite film that we're gonna cover, but it is. It's it's that there are bet that there are better films is really a testament to how good those films are. It's a cor- corporate espionage mm-hmm. um, with sorry Tom Wilkinson. There we go. I'm glad I have the cast yeah. list in front of me. Yeah, because I couldn't think of his name for life of me. But anyway, Tom Wilkinson at his best and just most energetic and uh, fighting against a, a, a corporation for not doing what they say they're doing. It's a pollution story, which I want to step in and say real quick, because my dad works in environmental groundwater law and all that, that's kind of what he does. I've grown up steeped in this stuff. So movies like this and a civil action are, they're crack to me. And a civil action is another damn good one. I really think everybody should reach back and find. Basically, you know, to to sum to sum it up, Michael Clayton, uh, George Clooney, is the fixer for a firm. But yeah, it starts with uh, kind of a nice, perfect little summation of his job, which is he is on he is on call at a house of a guy who basically hit, did a hit and run on a guy, and uh, it's like, oh, you know, he sent you. He said you're the best fixer in the business, and he's like, you're gonna get me out of this, right? And he's like. No, <laughs> yeah. that is not what I do. I don't know what he promised you, but here's what's going to happen. And then he lays it all out. And uh, like what we're what we're going to do is minimize the damage. And then that just kind of sets up his character nicely and sets up like the rest of the film as far as like, here's the standard. Like, here's how in over their head. Absolutely. Everyone is. Yeah, because that's the thing is nobody in this movie has the higher ground. Everybody is scrambling, and it's all set against these gorgeous upstate New York cold winter landscape shots. I mean, Ellswood's one of the top guys in the business, and God, this is a gorgeous film. I did get to see this one theatrically. I saw it at the Dollar Theater. And Clooney is, I think this is the best thing he's ever done Um, in a very good career. I think this is the best work he's ever done. He is so on his game he should have won the oscar for this i think he should have won best actor for this he is incredible in it um he looks beat up in it that's the thing that i like is there's no ego to his performance no he looks beat up and you've got wilkinson who is going who is crazy and in another year would have had the best supporting actor oscar sona unfortunately this is 2007 and and then you have tilda swinton who did win and I joked in the 2008 cast that it was funny that she won for playing her most normal performance. And that's really an insult to her performance to say that because she is so scary in this. At the same time, she's sympathetic. Yeah, she is. And and she's both at the same time all the time. This is a great performance. Just the thing where she is talking to essentially like her own fixer, like a hitman and saying, or like, they're for whoever it is, and she's just trying to dance around like I I want you to kill him or whatever, and she's just like, so what can you do for? Uh, and he's just and he's just like, come on, don't be like that. Just say what you want. Yeah, it's the writing on this because this is one I have the physical script for. 
it's to be studied. It's it's so well done. Um, this is filmmaking at its purest. It's there's no there's nothing heightened about it. It's just good down the middle. And man, that climax it is rocky level. Just the line, just that line. You're so fucked. And then what? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is Rocky, Karate Kid, every sports movie you've ever seen in terms of just nailing how good it leaves you sending out into the theater, which is a weird thing to have happen, but it, it, it works, and that's because of the script is so good. Yeah. So, Zephyr, that's one. I highly recommend it. But now we're going to get into one that we've all three seen, and I think this is going to be a good scramble because we have to address Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah. This is going to be a complicated conversation. I almost want to just say, well, it came out and then move along, but because we could, we we may be getting. Zephyr, I'm going to let you, actually, Albert, I'm going to let you go first. Okay, well, I mean, I probably don't have as much to say. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, yeah, because I I saw it in a church group of all places. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've only, again, I've only seen it once, but it did leave impression like you know it's ryan gosling as this kind of loner guy and uh he gets he gets a real girl as it were like a sex doll and he does not um well i'm not gonna say that because that's one of the things we discussed like in the group after it's like well did he have sex with it i don't know i think the point is it's none of our business but uh like he uh he treats it as as it's real girl and of course, it becomes part of the community. That's basically the premise of the film. I thought it was sweet. Like I thought it was like sad at the end when he like just suddenly loses. Well, I don't know how much a spoiler. It's it's a, thir- it's a thirteen year old film. Yeah, when the delusion starts to crack. Let's put it that way. When a delusion starts to crack, and he's like, she's not breathing. But yeah, so yeah, I, I thought I thought it was a cute interesting little film that was um had a lot it wanted to explore i mean on on a story level i'm not sure if i was could personally relate (laughs) on a level as far as where the character was but i get i get that sense of loneliness you know that part i do get and i will having said that i will say just coming out of the community I was in for like eight years. Uh, Zephyr, you know the one. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know several people who had like the waifu thing and that trope oh. that still drives me nuts. And it's, and it's like a get either get a real girlfriend or commit to, you know, <laughs> you know, not because this is not the way to <laughs> like this is easy relationships are complicated if you don't want to deal yes. with that you do not be- you do not belong in a relationship you know so it's it you know so on that level i don't know where i'm going with that i'm kind of glad you laid out i think you made some points that i'll be bouncing back to yeah i think that's all i have to say on it zephyr i'm very eager to hear what you think of this film i honestly don't like lars and the real girl yeah. um we i didn't see it until college and it was for my interpersonal communication class and the whole 
premise was that we watched the film and discussed the various communication methods employed within the film, as well as how Lars uh, is struggling with this particular scenario. And at at the time, at, at the time, I was still, I was slowly coming out of my my show in terms of dealing with not just an autistic identity but a mental health identity and perspective how things go and it's easy for this film to take a swipe at the the mental health of Lars because mm-hmm. a sim I wouldn't say a similar premise but the idea of a, a grown man you going through a crisis and relating to an inanimate object and having his close companions deal with that uh, would be echoed later with Jodie Foster's The Beaver with yeah. Mel Gibson. Honestly, God, I, I don't even know how, how best to phrase my feelings towards Lars and the real girl other than it's there are places that it kind of toes the line at in terms of Lars's mental health and how how to best deal with that. Because let let's be clear, the the premise of this is absurd to say the least. And yeah, it is, and that's where I was going to be getting with this. And Lars obviously should have gotten some form of professional therapy instead of ordering a life-sized fuck toy. Yeah. <laughs> it Parts of it just rubbed me the wrong way, and... I can very definitely see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I feel about movies. I love this movie, but it's also the, the movie that I love the most that I completely understand why people hate it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's because for me it's all about the execution. I feel like this is all executed really well, but it's a sharp it's a slight breeze and this would knock everything over. It's that they got lucky that they cast it perfectly, that it's really well directed. Because I mean on a script level, I love this movie and even I'm going to tell you this thing it's got a lot of issues. I don't think you could make it now. No, 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 you couldn't. You couldn't make it now, and I wouldn't. Hate would be a, too strong of a word for my feelings towards this. It's not my cup of tea. It just some things didn't set right with me, and I just kind of want to place it on the ground and go, "No, thank you." Yeah, <laughs> I think that's fair. I think it couldn't get made today because I think you would have to deal with the toxic masculinity elements of a sex doll. And you'd have to get into that, and you'd have to get into waifus, and you'd have to get into all of that. Yeah. And the movie was made just at a moment that we could ignore it. Not that it wasn't there, but that you could ignore it, and you couldn't do that now. So that's kind of how I feel about I do think Ryan Gosling is fantastic in it, though. I think if there were a performance that showed that he could do more than The Notebook, boy, was this it. And we should have already known that by, by that point, but, you know. Yeah, that much I agree on. It just yeah, it's it's, it's it, alienating. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it is. 
I'm going to shoot through American Gangster real quick and just quickly give a couple of thoughts on it. Um, this is a movie that the wrong Scott brother directed this movie. Is how I feel about this. Um, you know, I'm public on saying I don't think Ridley Scott is a very good director. I really don't. I think this is one of my favorite films that he's done. Um, you know, and, and look, obviously, I'm not going to say anything negative about Alien. I just want you, Alien and Blade Runner, don't worry, I'm not coming after those. But I think he's really bad at directing humans. I think he, if he gets lucky and he gets a good script, like, say, um, Matchstick Men, he does okay. But I think Scott is, he's the wrong brother for this movie. This really should have been a Tony Scott movie because this required, it's a movie about drug dealing and it required that spark that this is a little too sedate. This was a movie that was, for those that don't know, this movie was in development for years. And I mean years. This was basically going to be Superfly, the true story is how it was being sold. Uh, Antoine Fuqua was going to direct it, which is how Denzel Washington got involved. Of course, Washington stayed on the project. Uh, Russell Crowe would join him. And I think it's fine, but there is a reason. This was going to be Universal's big Oscar movie. Universal would wash out at the Oscars this year. I want to point that out. They This, this was not their year uh, because they were backing this in the kingdom. And this was a bigger hit, but it was on video really fast. It was on video in February for a November release. And back then, even with things still getting a little bit quicker, that was still pretty fast. Um, yeah. This is an okay movie, uh, but it's an okay movie because it's Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe, Josh Brolin, um, John Hawks. Cuba Gooding Jr. has a really great supporting part in this. Um, he's really funny in it. Uh, Idris Elba has a small part. I mean, there's, there's some good acting but it's all shot with Scott's very bland camera. And I just, Tony Scott in man on fire mode would have killed this movie. If he'd done it, it would be a movie we'd still be talking about. Just, I, I love man on fire. So that's a movie that it's ignored. It's, it's been ignored. So now we're going to get to, this is the big one of the movies we're going to cover on this cast. This is the big one right here. And of course, we're talking about B movie. No, I'm kidding. No, no, we're, uh, we're jumping right over B movie. Nope. Course. Get out of coin. It's time to discuss the winner for best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay, um, best uh, supporting actor this year. No Country for Old Men. My pick for the very best film of the 2000s. This is this is it. This is. It may not be my favorite, but it is my pick for the strongest film of the 2000s. Uh, it's a good thing Magnolia did not. Likewise. At the very least, it's got to be in the Pantheon. A return to form, as it were, for Coen's after a drought. Yeah, they had a rough few years. Um, I I would I would love for us maybe at some point to go back and cover the two films where they hit their nadir with The Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. Movies that I I have... I like The Lady Killers, but... I do too. But Intolerable Cruelty does not work even in the least. This one, here's the thing. On one hand, this is the big one to discuss. But on the other hand, there's not much to discuss. Because it's one of those movies where every single element is fantastic. 
like all you can do is read the cast list and realize that every single one of these actors is at their the best they're ever going to be. This is the best work Tommy Lee Jones has ever done, I think, because he is so beaten and worn and tired in it. He's incredible. Josh Brolin is a bastard by all accounts in real life. Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's there's a lot of abuse stories about him. I think this is the best he's ever been cast, just getting to play that bastard part. Kelly McDonald, who I love from Train Spotting, has a part in this movie. Uh, she plays Brolin's wife, and she gets one scene where she's just devastating, and she gets to the core of everything that the Coens are trying to do. This is a movie about chaos and about a universe where the, the Coens are very interested in universes where God is not there is the way that I would describe their movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting because you say that because, uh, yeah, that is true. But at the same time, um, with films like Big Lebowski with yeah. um, Hail Caesar, it feels like yeah, God isn't there, but they're the gods. Yeah, <laughs> if that makes exactly. sense. Like, like the film, the film itself is its own personality, like is its own character in a sense. And I think that because of this one, they were adapting a Cormac McCarthy novel. Who, I mean, boy, there's the bleakest novelist you can think of. Um, and yeah, this is their most chaotic film. You know, having said that, and yeah, it does illustrate that very well. Uh, you know, they've only done two. They've done. I, Maybe they've done more, but there's only two that are coming to my mind of straight adaptations of books. This and True Grit. And when they adapt, the book comes first. The Coens step back. Uh, they, they they are... It's the book that matters. This has this amazing Texas vibe. It is, it's a modern Western. It's set... I want to say it's in the late 70s, early 80s. It's, it's in that vague melange of time. I don't know when it's set. That's the thing. It yeah. feels like it's not set in, it feels like it's set in a moment that's just past us. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, as I said, the actors are so good. You've got Woody Harrelson. Uh, Stephen Root's in there, I'm pretty sure. Yes, he is. Yes. Um, it is, I mean, it's such an amazing cast of actors. Ah, but it feels like there's someone that I'm forgetting that I should be talking about with this movie. Javier Bardem. Yeah, Javier let's, Bardem. Let's, let's get to Javier Bardem. Was there even an argument of who was going to win the Oscar this year? <laughs> was, it, was, it, was, it, was it even in doubt that this was going to go to Bardem and he was going to run away with it? No. <laughs> no. No. And, and, and that brings me to, I want to talk about the coin scene. Because I truly believe of all the moments that I've ever seen on film that are like scary in horror movies, very few are as scary as the scene in the gas station. Yeah. It is, to me, the Coens won their Oscar for that scene, and Bardem won his Oscar for that scene. And it is because the scene is of unrelenting tension. And it's because it's a great example of why dramatic irony is one of the best devices you can use. We know exactly what's going to happen if the guy gets it wrong. He doesn't, and he's just playing it off as a goof. Right, like, uh, just another customer. He's like, no, no, no. Just another weird customer. I, I get them all. The way that scene is executed, and the way that when it ends in victory for the guy, 
you just literally when I was watching it, you could feel the audience just go, <sighs> uh-huh. And the way that Bardem plays it, where he's like, You don't know how lucky you are. He's trying to tell the guy, Listen, you just got away with something. You ran into me and you didn't die. And such a fascinating performance by Bardem. He is because he plays the swaggering Lothario so well, he would go on to be an absolutely god-tier Bond villain uh, in Skyfall. My god, is he amazing in Skyfall. Uh, and just uh, not not to... Well, again, 13-year-old film spoilers, but like just in contrast to that scene where uh, he runs into... Um, I forget the character's name, but Llewellyn's wife, and yeah. she just refuses to play along. That's the scene I was talking about. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a god tier acting duel by these two geniuses who are just throwing heat. I mean, I this is what this is one of the few best pictures where I don't even think there's a question of should it have won. And I know a lot of people are going to argue there will be blood. We're getting there, okay? We're getting there. To me, this was the indisputable winner for this year. It is. There's the hotel scene where there's kind of the, it's sort of a chase basically between Llewellyn and uh, Chigurh, and it's amazing. It's so tense. This is the Coens, like, I don't think anybody knew they had it in them. I mean, sure, they started with a film noir, but after that, they just do nothing but comedies. And so to see them do something this scary and intense. And I mean, this is one I've gone back to several times over the years. And it's just, it's always, it's its music is what it is. Roger Deakins did not win the Oscar for this. And man, Ellswit was just that good on There Will Be Blood. But I think you could argue he should have won for this. Um, Deakins would basically be the king of not winning an Oscar, even though you deserved it for utterly reinventing your art form up until uh, Blade Runner 2049. God, this is such a good movie. The only thing that I would have to add is that that brief, like, between, what, 2004 and 2007? Yeah. Uh, blip, like, between, or actually really 2001, I think, in Tyro Cruelty, uh, yeah. seems, like, in their career since, uh, seems so short. It does, because ever since then, they've just been absolutely devastating. Knocking out of the park. Completely. And I would I would argue that Fargo, the TV series, is a gigantic love layer to their work. It is. It's Well, while being its own thing. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say. Let's, let's hit up Mr. Megorium's Magical Emporium so that I can make an observation. Hmm. Imagine how badly you have to flop to have all of the heat that Zach Helm had coming into this movie. He was, I mean, he was Hollywood's next big thing uh, between this and Stranger Than Fiction. Then Stranger Than Fiction doesn't perform as well as they were hoping, and this outright tanks. Uh, now, Stranger Than Fiction, I think, has been redeemed with time. It was a Will Ferrell movie, and it was a little too weird for people. But I think it's it's been redeemed. I think Stranger of Fiction, I love that movie. I'm very open about that. This movie is just true. The reason that that one holds up is that one had acid to it. It had a bite. It had performances. It was good. Man, this one is sappy, treacly bullshit. And 
It's a combination of whimsy and sadness, and when you combine those two, you can basically count on your film tanking. Like, it's amazing how often people think that's a good combination, and it's not. I mean, keep in mind that earlier in 2007, we also had Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah, a movie tanked by its ad campaign. Oh yeah, the ad campaign was fucking atrocious. And well, you even... have to keep in mind that the co-writer of the film was the inspiration for the book in the first place, because he lived through it, which is completely true. His mother wrote the book based on his, his experience of losing his best friend. So, of course, he was pissed at Disney. I, it, it's a hard sell to people, and Bridget Terabithia did at least get the redemption of people really liking it and it actually being a good movie. This did not have that. And so I'm, we've, I, I don't even have anything more. But as I said, after this, Helm would not work again. Period. Just, just to be clear, by the way, Richard Kelly had Southland Tales. Which I wanted to briefly touch on in the very briefest of manners. It was this follow-up to Donnie Darko. It did not work. That's all I'd say. It, the Emperor had no claws. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But he still got to work again. That's the thing that I want to point out. Is he got to work again. Helm didn't. So, just imagine that. And then I want to talk about a movie that I did see. And I, what Beowulf did to adult animation... We covered this on the Adult Animation Cast, so I'm not going to waste too much time on it. What Beowulf did to setting back adult animation, it will probably take another 10 years to recover from. I And I say this as someone who loves Neil Gaiman, but him and Roger Avery deciding to write a black comedy version of Beowulf... Neil Gaiman was involved in this? Neil Gaiman co-wrote yep. it. Neil Gaiman co-wrote it. And doesn't even have the excuse of, well, his script was taken out of his hands. No, this was the script he and Roger Avery wanted. They're proud of it. I This movie, it's not, I don't think it's that bad, but I think it makes so many bad adaptation choices with myth. Incidentally, there was a, uh, a barely released version of this that came out a few years later, but there was, there was an adaptation that was like, okay, what if this was the real story that inspired Beowulf? And that one was much better received than this. I don't know. This is, this is, this is not one to, this is, this is a bad movie. Good 3D, but Robert Zemeckis is so. I didn't feel like it was terrible. It just barely left an impression on me. That's the thing. It did, and it should have done more. Um, I will say Robert Zemeckis, uh, our friend Mason, is quick to point out that Zemeckis has issues with women. I don't fully think that's true. I think that stuff like Back to the Future has some really strong scenes. Uh, everything Leah Thompson gets in that is really good. Um, I also think that Contact really shows that he can do just fine. But this movie, he's got his issues with women out there. It's This is... Man, this is this this is the Madonna horror complex all over. And next is Enchanted, and um, I actually like Enchanted a lot. But I will say, I've realized over the years it is a rewrite away from being exactly as good as I think it needed to be. I think yeah. it stems from a fatal casting mistake that they make. Does it really? Yeah, and it's they should have switched the actors playing the prince and the uh 
guy that she falls for in the real world, and they should have switched personalities. Because the, the boring, stoic, leading man is more akin to the prince archetype from the Disney stuff, whereas the crazy, over-the-top comedic character is more... You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's more interesting. The problem that this movie has is James Marsden is just way more interesting than Patrick Dempsey. Way more interesting. I forgot James Marsden was in that. He's in... Oh, he is... He's on fire in it. And Marsden had a really good 2007. He had a really... Because he had Hairspray as well this year. And he really showed off that he's got comedic chops to burn. He's good in this. I just, at the end of the day, I don't believe that she's going to prefer the boring homemaker guy to the to James Marsden at his most charismatic. <laughs> I just, I don't buy it. And Patrick Dempsey is a block of wood. He He's just, he's barely acceptable as a leading man. I know that Grey's Anatomy was huge at this moment. I don't believe she's going to prefer him. Uh, Amy Adams is great, and it, it did launch her into the career that she's had. So I can't say too much negative about it. I, I enjoy it. This is one I enjoy. Um, yeah. And of course, I love the touch of having uh, all the various Disney princesses. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, their character, their li- like, not their characters, but just appearing in live action. Yeah. Now, fun fact. I'm going to just throw this out as a trivia question. How does this movie presage one of the most iconic Disney uh, heroines? Because this, te- this movie technically has a Frozen reference. Oh, does it? Long before Frozen came out. Yes, it does. Patrick Dempsey's fi- fiance in the movie? Adina Menzel. Oh, yeah. Adina Menzel. So, Elsa is in the movie. That's really funny. Mm. Actually, <laughs> This would only be like five, six years before. Yeah, it was a and, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was six years before Frozen, so it was definitely not intentional. Okay, I do want to quickly hit on the Golden Compass and just can we all agree what an absolutely bad idea that movie was? <laughs> it was a bad idea. It never could have worked. And see, I know they're doing they're redoing the TV show is well received. Yeah, it, it never could have. You can't do... You, I'm sorry, you cannot sell to Americans a blockbuster with the premise of there is no God. Right. That, that shit just ain't selling in America. And this was coming, like, two years after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's right, yes. And Lord knows I remember those, those church bulletins where they were telling us, oh, go see Narnia, and then... Please, for the love of God, do not support the Da Vinci Code and the Golden Compass because (laughs) themes. And now that I'm older, wiser, learned a bit more things, it... Out of the indoctrination. I I mean, I wasn't going to put it in those terms, but yeah. (laughs) That's the term I would use. Like, critical thinking... Could can we please bring that back? Yeah. Can, can we please have critical thinking again? Because we kind of need that, especially when you're dealing with material that you might not necessarily agree with or based on a different set of principles. 
that are ideologically now okay of course there are lines in the sand there's yeah i'm I'm not trying to do a both sides centrism piece of bullshit here but just the golden compass it tried it tried it it tried it was in development hell i think the first i heard about it being adapted was back in 2003 yeah, and at the time, uh, like like I said, this was a couple of years after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Disney was still trying to get Artemis Fowl adapted to the big screen. But That's when they were discussing that. Yeah, we all know what fucking happened. And <laughs> God. Just adapts the damn books. Yeah. Have y'all ever noticed that the reason that Lord of the Rings is treated equally in film and book is because they just adapted the damn things. Yes, they yeah. made changes, but they fundamentally just adapted the damn things. Yeah, they made changes in in accordance with the original. Yeah. 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 They didn't they didn't Okay, so here's the plot thread where Frodo's a secret agent. <laughs> if he yeah, if he made any changes is because of the Silmarillion. If they made any changes too, it was because hey, they're different media. So guess what? Tom Bombadil can get his Tom Bombadil ass out. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was so happy with that. I was too. I mean, but like with Lord of the Rings, they even got the prologue on screen, which I think is a brilliant decision. Um, but I I, I want to just I want to say you mentioned those three films. The funny thing is, I would be saying watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe two over those two. Just because they're be- just because it's a better film, it it is a better film. The effects still hold up. The set design is gorgeous. It, it's so acting's god dear. Talk about Tilda Swinton kicking ass. Hell yes. Oh, she's oh. so delicious in it. I love her performance. In it. That oh god, that that's one of her finest roles right she's there. So, she's so good in it, and she's having so much fun. Liam Neeson as Aslan was great. Uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm. I feel weird that I'm even saying this, but seriously, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just double back and watch that because it kicks ass. It's. it's oh yeah. Cool. Oh, and we can't forget James McAvoy's Tumness. Yes, I have to. Tumnus. I have to make an admission. I haven't seen it, dude. Watch it. It's <laughs> it's really good. It's it, gorgeous. Uh, Jim Broadbent has a good bit in it. Uh, Oh, it's so much. It's 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 this. It's one that I think holds up. It's it's a really good film, and forget the religious elements of it. It's yeah, very easy to do. It's just a good epic fantasy, and it's it's fun. I I, I really have a lot of love for Lion Witch, and I'm a CS look. Look, I'm. It's weird to say forget religion, and then to say this in the next breath. I am a CS Lewis fan, and of his religious writings. Just to be blunt, I I admire them. I don't always agree with what he's saying, but I think he's poetic about it. So there's that one. And I would like to qualify a statement made earlier. When I say indoctrination, I mean like, you know. Yeah, we know what I you mean. I mean it in, yeah, the best possible terms. I was, yeah, I was raised Christian, uh, but my favorite author is Douglas Adams. So there you hey, go. Go figure. Um, talking about favorite authors, that's an amazing segue. Because I want to talk briefly about I Am Legend. And it's going to let me bridge to the last cast um, because of the circumstances that I saw this in. 
if it's okay with y'all, I'm going to get really personal and tell a story. Mm, go right ahead. Um, in December of 2007, my depression was starting to bottom out. And I feel like over these next few films that I'm going to discuss, you're going to, uh, that's going to be a thing. My depression was starting to bottom out, and so I took a trip up to Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I stayed in a house. I got some cider. Um, I listened to Batman Nightfall on the way up. Um, and I went to the movies. I, I went to a bookstore. I got uh, Jeff Smith's Shazam, The Monster Society of Evil, and Wonder Woman, Amazon's Attack, which Linkara fans know that one, and uh, they know it right. I'll put it that way. Yeah, it's it's as bad as he made it out to be. And I saw I Am Legend in a theater. Um, one fun thing was that one of the trailers they had was for a movie that didn't actually come out. Uh, we actually I, That was one of the rare movies where I've seen a trailer for something that did not even get a, it didn't get released until 2012 in any medium. And I think it was even longer than that. Uh, the Poughkeepsie tapes. I, I fucking hate the Poughkeepsie tapes. Oh, it looked like shit. Oh, it is absolute hot garbage because it's essentially putting Final Cut Pro filters on footage that was supposed to be on a format that didn't have widescreen access or capabilities in a 16 by 9 format not to mention i i really fucking hate the the poughkeepsie tapes it's it just sounded like torture porn it is torture porn because there are very leering close-ups of some of the kills in more or less real time and yeah not my jam not no. my fucking jam. Funnily enough, there was another found footage trailer on this movie, on I Am Legend, uh, Cloverfield. Mm. Going to throw out a theory that that might have been a little bit of a better movie. And uh, Cloverfield did, of course, get a theatrical release because I saw it. And have mentioned many times before that it is one of my favorite movies. Uh, let me pitch right here. We'll need to do... Uh cast on the Cloverfield trilogy. How have we not done one yet? That's amazing. I know. Let's get to I Am Legend because what I, because as I said, I was going through this really hard depression moment and I will say this about I Am Legend. I think it's okay. And it's okay in the sense that the first half is really brilliant and the second half is it goes off a cliff. But it averages to okay. But man, it goes off. It goes off a cliff, and it's because of one decision. The moment anybody else shows up, the movie falls apart. And if they had just stuck with just Will Smith figuring this out, there doesn't need to be another human being in this movie at all. All he would need to do would be maybe mail it out. You're not adapting the uh, classic book. Um Honestly, for me, I Am Legend went way downhill right when Will Smith just stops and watches Shrek. Yeah, that's the scene where it just <laughs> it, it, it crumbles, and I hate that. The film grinds to a halt, and why do I want to watch Will Smith watching Shrek? I don't, I don't <laughs> want to watch that. But I will say this, the audience that I watched it with, laughed their asses up. They, they they were yelling, they were hooting, they were hollering, they were talking back to it. And in this depression, I felt a little bit less alone for two hours. That was nice. 
So I don't think it's a great movie, but I'm grateful that I saw it for that. Um, uh, so our next movie that I'm going to jump to, um, really quickly, we've already covered Walk Hard in the full cast. I just want to say it's still brilliant. It's still brilliant. Sweeney Todd. Let's briefly talk Sweeney Todd and about how, damn it, I still think this movie's great. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that the day after Christmas, uh, which if you're ever planning on going to see a movie the day after Christmas, especially when the theater is in shares a huge parking lot with several different uh, centers of commerce, don't. You will be stranded. <laughs> but however, yeah, I don't regret seeing it. No, Sweeney Todd kicks ass. It does. It, it's a good... Uh, social film get together with a few friends. The music's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's catchy. It's catchy. It does the musical a great justice. Even if the singers aren't that good, they're good. Act- they're good actors, is what I'll put it. Um, especially Helena Bonham Carter. She is on one in this movie, and she's just delirious fun. The reveal of the Mad Woman's identity hits you like a brick and it hurts. I think the act, again, everybody in this movie, the acting is just incredible. Um, I do think Alan Rickman, it's some of his best stuff. He, he leans into this. He plays it up. He's so good in it. Um, so I've got a lot of love for what Alan Rickman does. Um, it's one of Johnny Depp's best late career performances by far. But there's one that I really want to know, and that's Sasha Baron Cohen. I think he does some of his most interesting work in this film, even though he's not in it for very long, because of one scene. And it's the scene where he just drops the act completely. And I have a theory that after the year of doing Borat, it had to be so cleansing to him to do a scene in a movie where he's playing an exaggerated character, and then he just goes to his natural speaking voice. It felt on a meta level like Cohen was like, okay, I'm exercising this. I'm, I'm letting it go. Well, I mean, natural speaking voice in a French accent, but or an Ital- Italian accent. Well, the whole thing but, is oh, that he, he, drops well, that's the, true. he drops the Italian accent and goes for his natural British voice. That's true. That's right. Because it wasn't, a, I'm sorry, I forgot the premise of his character for a second. Yeah, the whole thing is that he's playing this Italian stereotype, and he's like, no, look, hey, I knew you once. I, you know, and it's it's really good, very different work from Cohen. And, of course, Cohen is in a really good place right now in his career, uh, with Borat getting raves. Good on him for just navigating... Uh, we we needed Borat now. Yeah, coronavirus for this, like putting himself at risk. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he took all the precautions he could. You look at some of the behind the scenes footage on that movie, and it looks like it was dangerous to make. Period. Um, so I do want to note that the bucket list came out because that was a big hit, and that's such a terrible premise and it's offensive. We did not get the late career Jack Nicholson movies we deserved. Okay. And so now we're going to close with two really big movies. These are these are big ones, and I wanted to put them at the end because I wanted to give them some time. Ah, uh, yes, the Water Horse, Legend of the Deep. <laughs> Next, no, no, we're not, we're not Classic. Alvin and the Chipmunks one. Oh, also a classic. The prequel to the great 
uh, road chip. Yes. <laughs> let's let's talk. Let's 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 talk Juno. Um, because I had a nervous breakdown while I was watching you. And oh, do tell. You have to talk about you. You have to talk about how you're what. I had to watch it a couple of more times to truly figure out how I felt about this movie because I was put in an impossible situation. And I want you to try and process this. I, I found out that I had to get more experience to get a job, but at the same time, I couldn't get experience. So that didn't make any sense to me. And I was confused. And I was frustrated. And so when I was watching Juno, I couldn't process it. And that was frustrating to me. And I had to come back to this movie a couple of times. But when I did, I'm glad I did, because I think Juno is brilliant. I think Juno is a really great film. And I think that what makes it strong is the writing is so good. I think we joke about the dialogue in this movie, but the whole point of it is it's a shield. Juno talks the way she does so that she doesn't process trauma. And I love that about the film. I love that's what it's about. It's about how do you process trauma? Hmm. Never thought of it that way. I think it's all over the film. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Ellen Page is incredible in it, and I'm not surprised that she didn't go on to more work, because I know exactly why she didn't. Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. I think this is an important film. I think it's a rare film about young female sexuality that's extremely good. And I just, I don't know, I think this is an important film, and I wanted to save it for next to last because I wanted to underline that I think it still deserves its place. Albert, what do you think of the film? Uh, I think it's great. I need to give it a revisit. It was one that uh, my family definitely fell in love with. Um, and we watched it a good number of times. I think J.K. Simmons does a really great job. Jennifer Garner is amazing in it. Jason Bateman's amazing in it. Yeah. Everyone's good. Yeah, I think the explorations are really good just as far as like, uh, you know, she she hangs out with the family that's, uh, you know, just thinks it's normal. And and all of a sudden it's like, a, no, this is not a this is not what I thought it was like. My complete immaturity brought me here. <laughs> it's a smart film. Uh, Diablo Cody's third that Oscar. Yeah, she did. And uh, is she still is she yeah. still? Yeah, yeah, good. She's very yeah. active. I'm glad to hear this, yeah. because she deserves all of that. Uh, I'm going to quickly address There Will Be Blood. It's a great quotable movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, not maybe not for... The right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I drink your milkshake. But otherwise, um, I enjoy it today just because Paul F. Tompkins makes an appearance in it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And he, talk, he talks about it on his... Uh, on one of his comedy albums, but uh, it's cold. It's a very cold film. Yeah. Um, I, I've i only seen the film once, and that was a while ago. However, I will say that it is a very well, well-made film, well-crafted. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously, he's fucking Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Daniel Day-Lewis, sing it up. Yes. Um, I will say it is a notable, uh, notable film in that this would be the start of the Paul Thomas Anderson and Radiohead 
yeah. uh, collaborations. Which have been great. And the score for this is fantastic. Oh, yeah. I, I need to go back and listen to the score. But what... I wouldn't say it's my favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson's work. I, I still need to go through his entire filmography to give a proper ranking. But it's up there. I'm... I know I'm long overdue for a rewatch of There Will Be Blood, and it's just a really good film, and a it was solid competition for No Country for Old Men, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It, very solid competition, where, honestly, I, depending on, depending on the year, it or at least my mood, it could go either way. I don't like this movie at all. And that's a controversial take. And I'm not saying it's badly made, because of course it's well made. Okay, so let me just throw myself to the wolves here. I'm going to do this in two minutes, because I love the challenge. I think this is a beautifully crafted film. I think it is cold on a script level. I think it is cartoon characters through and through. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is out of his league in a period piece. This is not his period. This is not what he does right. This just this movie does not work. This is his first movie after he got off cocaine. And I'm glad he did, and I think he's done some great work since. Man, this movie is dead in the water to me. It is paced like a frickin' glacier. And I'm sorry, Daniel Day-Lewis is shit in this movie. There. There's my hottest take of all. I think he's atrocious in it. I think he's annoying and loud. There's nothing subtle about his performance. I think I don't get this movie. And so this is just one that I don't like it at all. And I hate that because I love Anderson. He was out of his league on this movie. And this, this is a bad movie. So that's the note that we get to go out on is I threw a classic to the wolves. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but I mean it. It did not work for me at all. Fair enough. You can find us at theomniplex.org. We are at the Omniplex on Twitter and email us at theomniplexpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we're on Facebook. Seems a downright shame. Shame. Seems an awful waste. Such a nice plump frame What's his name has Had Has Nor he can't be traced Business needs a lift Debts to be erased Think of it as thrift As a gift If you get my drift Seems an awful waste I mean, with the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it. Ah. Good, you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney at a pie shop. Business never better, using only pussy cats and toast. Now what pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion. Well, Eminently practical and yet appropriate wise. as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've lived without you all these years, I'll never know. Think how about it. Lots of other gentlemen are soon becoming a fashion. Why they think of all that? Why they 
Desperate times, Mrs. Lovejoy. 